0: this idea that as the leader of the company, you are serving all these constituencies and that your role is to create economic success for the company, but create it in a way that benefits all these constituencies. I think that's the final part of my leadership. So servant leader, giving people an opportunity to do their best, listen a lot and take your responsibility when when you take it. I think these are like sort of my, if I were to summarize what I believe the best leadership style. and. The type of leader that I have strived, not necessarily succeeded at being through my career as I rose to the ranks. Welcome, I am your host, Dino Cattane, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. This is the second and final part of the episode where Randy Wilburn, my guest, interviews me. In part one, we talked about authenticity and my definition of success. In this portion of the conversation, we talk about leadership. Specifically, we talk about how my view of leadership evolved and was shaped as I moved through my career. And we talk about some great leaders and mentors that I work for and what I learned from them. We also talk about some of the challenges that I faced in my career and what I learned. And the episode finishes like all the other episodes finish. So you will hear the business jargon that drives me crazy. And you will hear some of my personal passions, including a story of when I got to meet my musical year. And talking of personal passions and music, One of the things that I didn't touch upon a lot in the episode, even though it's mentioned, is the fact that, aside from my regular work, I am the manager for my wife, Susan Catania. Susan is one of the best singer-songwriters in Boston. She has taught songwriting, actually, at Berklee College of Music for about 20 years. And like many artists who saw their live touring and their art uh, disappear for a while in the pandemic, she went through a rough stretch that then emerged with a batch of nine beautiful songs that she recorded with kevin Barry and duke levine who are two of the best guitar players in the country you probably heard them in records by peter wolf uh mayor chipping carpenters and many other great artists and the songs have they reflect sort of the gravity of the situation that we went through but they also have a big element of hope. And these songs are, if you're listening to this episode between October 25th and November 8th, we are in the middle of the crowdfunding campaign for the record. So you can go to Susan Pledge, spell dot com, which it will forward you to her Kickstarter page and see if there's a reward that you like and maybe contribute to the campaign. You will not regret it. It's a spectacular record and you will hear some songs from the record in this podcast after the record launches thank you i want to once again thank randy wilburn for being such a great interviewer if you haven't heard those two episodes make sure you listen to part one of this interview as well as episode 19 where i interview randy and then finally remember that at the end of october i will pick my favorite review of the podcast on apple podcasts or on good pods and send the author a copy of deborah sparr's book
1: Let's talk a little bit about, and this is something that I really enjoy talking about, leadership style. And I'd love, I'd love to learn about your leadership style. I'm going to preface it by saying this. When I've done leadership training, one of the things that I've always said to people is you need to know and understand your leadership style and the leadership styles of those that are around you. I would be curious to know, what do you consider your leadership style to be?
0: The idea of articulating a leadership style, it's something that I've actually been thinking about since early in my career but in the early phase it was more into the management style and i'll give an example when i was an analyst at lehman brothers i had this stretch where i was staffed on two different projects and in one project i was working directly with the svp a wonderful guy named rich thaler who is one of the people who really had a lot of impact on how i think about life and work and rich would say okay we need to present this to the client and I would create these documents for him, and he would take a quick look, and then he would go straight in front of the client. And as you can imagine, the level of responsibility, like the work, when I realized that that what was happening, I was putting a ton of work, triple, quadruple check in the stuff, and it was very high quality product, and that gave me opportunity to present in front of the client, et cetera. At the same time, I was on another project where I had a second year associate on me, who was very controlling. And no matter what I did, like he would go and change the footnotes in my models, et cetera. And I remember thinking like, why am I spending five extra hours making sure that this is perfect when I know that he will redo it all over again. Right. And so over time, my work for this person became a little sloppier because like, I don't want to do work that is useless because he's going to redo it all over again. And so That was like the first tenant of my what ended up being my leadership style started from the idea of the when am I performing the best, you know? And it's the idea is like when somebody entrusts me in the beginning with the responsibility. And so my first self-articulated idea was in managing, like the way that I'm going to manage people when I get a chance to manage people is I'm always going to start by giving them the chance to do the best work. And if they do their best work, I will only give the direction that is really needed because I know that that's what will get the best work. The second great lesson in leadership that I had was when I joined Bain, I spent a stretch of time helping in the marketing department and being staff working with Arit Gadish, who was the chairman. And Arit is a legendary figure in consulting. She's the person who, with Mitt Romney, renegotiated the debt for Bain and basically set up the great growth trajectory that the company has been on since the early 90s. And I was working with her and helping her. She was the feature speaker at the World Economic Forum, and I was helping her prepare her materials. And when I was working with her, I was always treated as an equal. My voice was treated as an equal. And I noticed that the way that she treated me, the way that she treated the assistant, the way that she treated the senior partners who would come into the meetings was always the same. There was no difference in how you were treated. And when she made a request, you did it, but it was always made with kindness and empathy. Like she always had this incredibly calm demeanor and very respectful and never made you feel like, you know, I was like a brand new first year consultant and here's the chairman of the company and I'm treated like an equal. You know, and once again, I had the, on my other case, I was working with a third year consultant and I was treated like somebody wasn't worth. It. And so the the other part that I, the other thing that I learned from Orit is that when there was a meeting, I was there were a couple of meetings that was a part of with other partners and Orit spent most of the meetings listening. Even though she was the chairman of the company, even though she was the you know, she ultimately had the ability to overrule people, she would listen to what everybody had to say. And her gift, her biggest gift is the ability to synthesize all the ideas in something that was new, but it also take into consideration everything that everybody had brought to the table. And so second sort of little thing in my head is like, okay, now I know that great leaders are not the ones who want their idea to win at all costs. But that are able to get all the great ideas from their team. And that was reinforced by David Edelman that I reported to at Digitus, who, you know, I I was at there's a point in everybody's career when you're like in the middle of your career, you've done things well, and you're kind of like crossing into that next level. You're you're managing a little bit of people. But it's still a point where you feel like you really need to prove that you have all the answers, et cetera. And I remember. We had a meeting with uh, our internal team to go over our Deliverable. And at the end of the meeting, Dave took me aside and said, Dino, I'm going to share something with you. You don't always have to be the smartest person in the room. I know that probably you have a lot of the answers that all the other people have. But if you don't let people put their ideas forward, they're never going to work with you. You know, learn to shut up and to let the other people talk and be like, oh, where have I seen this before? Ah, that's what I read. And that's what she did. And so the other tenant is basically be willing to go in a meeting with a true open heart that's like, you're really going to let the best idea win. And I think there is, and I don't want to say that I've been really good at it for my whole career, because definitely I have a, you know, I have a strong personality and when I have ideas and conviction, it it can be hard at times to move me. But there is nothing that is as powerful as starting a project and say, okay, I'm you know, this is how I see it. But if you have a fact based ways that shows me that it's better, I will do it. That being in a meeting and actually go saying, okay, yeah, you're right, let's do it your way. You know, when you do that for your team, like you build the level of trust that is really powerful. And then another really important lesson when I was the digital marketing officer of Astonish, which was the the company, and I had this really big team, and you know I came in with the idea, okay, I'm going to give everybody the chance to do their best work. I'm going to give everybody a lot of freedom, and you know, and with this idea that I was going to be this super special boss where you can do whatever you want, and it's great. And a really important lesson that I learned is that ultimately you still have a responsibility and an accountability to your team because your team wants some direction and. You know, six months into the work, some of the team members were struggling. And I'm like, what's not working? It's like, well, you know, you're putting it all on us. Oh, I have gone too far in that idea, right? As a leader, you have the responsibility to set direction. And then you have the responsibility to make the decision. And you have the responsibility to understand the style of the people that work for you and realize that you know not everybody loves to just be told do whatever you want and then deliver some people really like direction and i think that connects into a really important shift that i think has happened between the era when i was you know starting out in my career and this era and this is it like in the 90s and and you've been through that too the corporate culture and corporate best practices were really like that you had to understand and adapt to your leader and make sure that you supported your leader and adapt your style to their style. I think the combination of the cultural shift for Generation Y and Generation Z and the needs of the marketplace where things are so much more complex and the scarcity of talent, successful leaders need to adopt a perspective that is 180 degrees different, which is, as a leader, you use the term servant leader. As a leader, it's your responsibility to understand how everybody on the team performs and to adapt your style to their style, and make sure that everybody gives their best. And if you take the time to do that, not only everybody will do their best, but also I think you're kind of like making up for some portion of the shortage of talent because. In the old world, somebody who would have been considered like a B-minus or C-plus employee was like, well, we don't want them on the team. We only want to hire A and A-plus type employees, which is great if you can do it, but it's not necessarily always possible, especially in this market. And I think that as a leader, if you develop the mindset that you will understand what every person can do, and everybody, no matter what, has something that they can do really well. So if you manage to like understand what everybody on your team can do and raise the performance of some of the people that at first pass may look like they're C plus people, but maybe it's because they are like working in a different way or whatever, I think then you're expanding your ability to hire and your ability to build a team. So that, you know, that idea, I think like the other really important part of my vision of leadership is it's your responsibility as a leader to serve your team. And that's something that comes, I think, a lot from my family background. Like my father always saw his role as CEO to make sure that the company was economically viable because he had a responsibility to his employees, to his vendors, to the community that he was a part of, you know, and and, and it's funny because like, I remember I grew up in Italy and I I remember him railing against like the disparity of pay between the CEO and the employees in the US. He would say like, you know, oh, it's immoral. And I think that this idea that as the leader of the company, you are serving all these constituencies and that. Your role is to create economic success for the company, but create it in a way that benefits all these constituencies. I think that's the final part of my leadership. So servant leader, giving people an opportunity to do their best, listen a lot, and take your responsibility when when you take it. I think these are like sort of my, if I were to summarize what I believe the best leadership style and the type of leader that I have strived, not necessarily succeeded at being through my career as I rose through the ranks. So that's, that was a very long answer.
1: <laughs> no, it was a good answer, though. But you extrapolated out your thought process. And I like that because you're absolutely right about the fact that not only do you need to fundamentally understand your leadership style, but you need to understand leadership styles of people around you. That will make for a much better work environment. And you said something that was really interesting, and I think that everybody likes to be led differently. Some people like a lot of direction. Some people want for you to be hands off and just let them do their thing. You know, Steve Jobs famously said, I always try to hire really smart people, people that are smarter than me, and then get the hell out of their way and let them do their job. There's some fine line in there that I think as a leader, we all need to be striving for, especially if we have people that are employed by us or working for us or on our team, where we can get the best of them but they can become the best version of themselves too in the process. And I think that's important for all leaders.
0: You said something that was really interesting and resonated with me when I interviewed you, which was the idea that to you, it doesn't matter whether people agree with you or not, that you want to have a conversation with everybody and you want to be open to everybody. And that's something that really resonated deeply with me and The way that I think about it within the context of leadership, people who end up in leadership position just by their nature tend to be high-performing A-type people. And there's a phase of you're building something that you're looking for people like you, right? And so I think at some point, if you want to build a scalable enterprise, if you want to build a team that really can deal with the complexity of our environment, you need to be able to bring in people who don't look like you. And, and and I mean that in like in the broadest term of the term, whether it is background, gender, ethnicity, race, religion, point of views. is like, I think that's a really important ability to have to be able to work people who are very different from you, because you need that richness of ideas, of perspectives when you are facing hard decisions for the company, for your product. It's not possible to have all the answers in one person. The world is too difficult, it's too complex, and it moves too fast for one perspective to solve everything.
1: Yeah, diversity of thought, diversity of ideas, diversity of experience. I and mean, We need that to be a truly successful organization. So that's important. Dino, let's talk about something that isn't always fun to talk about. I forget what you asked me in our conversation, but you like to talk to people and you like to ask them about a personal crisis or failure that you faced. When things just didn't go your way, what were the challenges and what were the lessons learned from that personal crisis or failure? And just be as transparent as you can be, as you can comfortably be.
0: Yeah. I've talked about my depression and the crisis that that generated for me. And that definitely put a big stop, a big slowdown on my career in a point where, you know, some could say that you're four or five years out of business school. That's a really important point that has a really high impact on your trajectory. And I was dealing with depression. I left the job that I was at because I, I realized that I needed, We, were, as I mentioned, we were in Nashville and I really needed to just move back to Boston to create a safe environment for my wife to have a baby and for a network you know, where i had a network of people that i knew and the next job that i took when i started at Digitas, like you know if i had been just on a straight path there it would have been one level above i had to start sort of taking one step back but it was also understanding that at that stage the idea that i could go and do this job and do it well and be mentally well and understanding that i had to learn to organize my priorities, you know, and, and I think I was fully out of my depression about two years into the job. I had a friend at Digitas who knew the condition that I was in when I went through the interviewing process. I don't know how many of the people that I work with or that I, whether client or teammates realized where I was. I think in some ways I was able to be, you know, to function within the work environment without showing that. But I think that realizing that taking care of myself and maybe not be so concerned about the speed of my career at that time was a choice that I needed to do. That was a really hard moment. And then I had a couple of situations where clients that I did stellar work for, and then there's like two or three clients where the work wasn't that great. And I think that the realization there, like the biggest lesson there was that It does change, it does matter for me in terms of the work that I do, the amount of belief that I have in the actual work. Like if you're doing a consulting project and you know that at the end of the project, your client will take your recommendations and put them on the shelf. Or if you're working with a client who's general marketing philosophy is very different than yours and ultimately will not put in market the recommendations. Or if you're in a situation where the culture of the organization that you're dealing with is really political and you end up spending 70% of your time helping your direct client navigate internal politics, those were all situations where I found myself not putting forward you no know, honestly my best work and it's not something that i am proud of but the lesson that i learned from that was that i really need to have a lot of control on the type of clients that i work with because if i work with the right clients i know that i can do great work and i think that the ability to be not from an organization where you have to deal with the needs of at the end of the month there are salaries to pay, there is rent to pay, there is expenses. And so you end up having this gray area of clients that like you, maybe you wouldn't take them on in a regular situation. You know, they're not like there's certain clients is clear cut. You don't want to work with them. Bad culture, bad companies. And then, and there's some clients that are like dream clients, and then there's a gray area. And I think that by being independent, being my own shop, I have the ability to choose the clients that I work with. And to choose clients where I know that I'm going to bring 100% of myself because, or 120%, because I really believe in what I'm doing. And I'm really invested personally in what I'm doing for my client's success. And I think that was probably one of the big lessons that shaped the decision to not join an agency again when I went when I went back and to be on my own. And you know, now I'm actually, this is, Not fully public knowledge, but with a portion of my time, I have somebody who's a former colleague and that really, really a perfect complementary partner to me who is starting an agency and I'm helping her in starting that. And a portion of my time will be dedicated to building that agency. And at the core of the reasons why we're doing this together is this shared belief that we want to be agile and choose the right clients that we're super proud to work with and that you know, we can do great work for, and that we can really be fully invested in their success.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate you being transparent about your challenges, certainly with depression and and just kind of how you walked through that. I'm curious to know, were you able to go through or did you participate in any type of therapy?
0: Yes, I was in therapy for three years. And then there's a wonderful book called The Relaxation Response, which was given to me during a stressful time that I had at Bain by a wonderful manager there. And at the time, I did not understand the book. And then I went back to it about 10 years later, and it's a book about meditation and its impact that it has. And the author of the book, Herbert Benson, has started an institute here at the Mass General Hospital that has a program called the Stress Management and Resilience Training, and i took the program and so you know i incorporated a meditation practice i meditate every day i use there's a number of other techniques that relate to that that i incorporate in my day and that i also sometimes try if appropriate try to bring in with the work that i do with my clients share them with them see if they're a good fit for them because ultimately they really help not just with managing stress and anxiety but with just being effective and you know i've been as I said, like I came out of the depression in 2002 and certainly I've made sure that I don't let myself get to that point.
1: Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you sharing that. and that, that, that was one of the things I wanted to get to because I think a lot of times people think, especially when you get to a certain level within an organization or within your career and you're at a level that, that you think, oh, well, I can't show any weakness. And I think getting help, having a sounding board, having somebody that you can actually talk to to walk you through these situations is critically important for our mental and our, our physical well-being. And I think a lot of times people will eschew that too, just so that they don't show what they, they term to be a weakness, but it's really not a weakness. I think it's a strength when you can acknowledge some of your shortcomings. Yes.
0: And I think that, you know, there's been a definitely even since the late 2000s, early 2010s there's been a lot more of a shift in the culture in terms of acknowledging the weight of mental health and the importance of like managing mental health within a professional environment. and I think that you know definitely one of the good things from the pandemic is the fact that now sort of the lid has blown open and it's okay to acknowledge it it's okay to talk about it. it's actually important to talk about it and it's important to make sure that you're creating a space if you have employees where they feel safe coming forward and where you can support them in their mental health situation because the reality is that at the end of the day there's in everything there's degrees and so being in a crippling completely unproductive mental health situation is an extreme case right but there's a lot of people that are sitting in the middle And that could, they could go one way or another. And if they have, they're given the opportunity to deal with it when it's still manageable, it doesn't need to end up in a crippling state.
1: I like that. Well, I want you to help me out here, Dino, as we, as we start to land this plane, we, you know, I I want you to give three leadership tips for our listeners, things that you would recommend they do tomorrow morning when they walk to their desk, wherever it may be. And for some of us, that might be at our home.
0: Yeah, I think, and this is a theme that has been validated in a lot of the interviews that I did with, you know, in the other episodes. Like, the first thing is listen. So I think that if you have not told to your team one on one, you know, just open, normal conversation, I think that's the first thing that I would do. Go and talk to your team, whether you are running a team of three people, if you are a CEO running a 500, 2,000, 10,000 people organization. Think about planning, like listening tours where you go to different offices, the different levels, and just get the pulse of the organization. The second tip is, you know, more personal and it is in whatever job you're doing, really take a deep look at yourself and what is important to you and find the connection between the things that are truly important to you and what matters to you in your work, you know, and hopefully for the majority of my listeners this will be an exercise that lends to double committing in the job if you end up in the in the group of people that realizes that maybe you're not where you want to be the one thing that I want to share is this i think we all have a lot more career and life in front of us than we perceive i think that a lot of the times we are facing choices at work and we feel this is a life or death Choice. I think the one thing that completely, you know, getting completely crushed by a depression episode and coming back from it has taught me is you always have a second chance. Yes, it may like derail you from that super, superstar thing, but you always have a chance to rebuild your career. And if you are in a place where you're not happy, this is the second part, it's not going to end well. And then the third piece of advice that I would give to leaders right now, and this is a little more specific to the world where we're in right now. Understand that if you're thinking about all the different styles and ways that your employees work, take that mindset towards your decisions in terms of being in the office or not being in the office. I think there's a lot of really important components to both being physically together with your team. And there's also importance in the safety that people s- feel in working from their home. And I think that do not take a black and white approach to that, but like really think through your organization, the roles, the people that you have, and just make sure that the demand that you're making to them in terms of where they work, fit their best style so that they'll give you the best work.
1: That's good. I like, I like all three of those. That those are great, great tips. And I hope people are taking notes. Let's shift gears a little bit, Dino. I want to find out a little bit more about Dino. Yeah. What are some of your passions outside of the workspace and how how do they shape the leader that you are?
0: Yeah. So I think the first one, I love my family and I think that it shaped not necessarily the leader, but my career choice. I realized that unconsciously my career choices were always driven more by how they would impact me and my family than the overall trajectory and the places where it went out of whack didn't work out. but I have two passions. The first one is music. I've played music since I was a kid since I was 15. I've been in a band for 10 years growing up in Italy. and I am not a super gifted musician. I was the bass player. I was the classic the bass player where you know you have four friends who have a band It's like, oh, we need to get a bass player. Can somebody learn to play the bass? And in the bass band that I was in, we had a really good guitar player who was a great songwriter and a drummer who had a lot of personality. And I found myself as the bass player in the role of more the person who mediated the other people and then the person who maybe took on the job of promoting the gigs, et cetera. And so the dynamics of the band have informed to me an understanding of what it means to work in a team and really to get committed to the overall success of the team. So that's a component. And the second thing that I love is skiing. In the stretch when I went to 40% of my time, not traditional work. I actually, there's a wonderful starter mountain that's about 30, 40 miles west of Boston that's called Wachusett. And it's a, a mountain that's known for really getting people there for experience with skiing. And I, I taught skiing there for five years. And it has given me like the, the process, first of all, of being trained on how to become an instructor. And then the experience of helping somebody who has never skied before get into the end Of an hour and a half group lesson and starting to make their first little turns, it's really taught me a lot and changed my perspective in how I work with people. And a lot of the ideas about being able to adapt to other people' styles come from the fact that in the beginning of the training to be a ski instructor, we talked about the different learning style, like kinesthetic style, visual style, whatever. And the idea that you need to tailor your lessons. That the first thing that you need to do when you have a group of skiers that you're teaching is like, okay, figure out how every person here learns and tailor your lesson to them. I think that's sort of been a way that reinforced this idea of adapting as a leader to your team.
1: I like that, skiing. I would have never thought skiing, but that's that's cool. I've only been skiing like twice in my lifetime. I've always wanted to do more skiing, so I may have to hit you up for some lessons. So Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. All right, got two last questions. These questions are really formulated for us to understand this whole idea that we're really not supposed to take our work so seriously that we can't uh, have some fun in life. And so first one is, is simply this, the BS detector or bullshit detector, every era has a business lingo with certain keywords that are so overused, they become hollow. And I have like several in my head right now. Which ones are the ones that bother you the most, and what images do they conjure up?
0: A key word from the last 5 to 10 years that has really bothered me is the overuse of wanting to be a disruptor. It is not that I don't acknowledge the fact that great companies have been born out of being disruptors and being successful, but it's the idea that the main reason why there are disruptors is that not everybody can be a disruptor. And that if we focus everybody on being a disruptor, we end up setting everybody on a road to failure. And I think that while it is great to be wanting to build a disruptor company and a unicorn, those also tend to be, you know, zero-sum game things. And I think the majority of the people need to think about different ways to operate and maximize their life and professional life and and it goes back also to setting up the right success metrics for yourself and the other thing i think with a lot of the keywords the thing that bothers me the most is the fact that a keyword becomes a trendy keyword and people start using it without really thinking of the implication And then my other pet peeve, which is a little childish, but like, if you are putting in your LinkedIn description that you are a ninja or a guru at something, you are not. (laughs) Because especially the guru moniker, you don't give yourself, other people
1: give to you. Yeah, I love that. And I've I've heard several people mention the ninja thing. It's like, no, you're not a ninja. So there's no sense in mentioning that, but okay. Well, that's good. I like that. So last question, and this is, I think, one of the most important questions to ask this whole idea of food for the body or food for the soul which one would you choose something that you enjoy a lot it can be food it can be something else that you like to do i I understand you like music so i'm sure you could go a number of different directions plus you're italian so you know good food i
0: do i think that so i'm going to start with food and i'm not going to do a unique dish but When I came over from the US, from Italy, there's a certain amount of snobbery on the food. And certainly in the 90s, this was not a country where you ate well. But I love the fact that between the end of the 90s and the 2000s, there's a whole generation of American chefs that have taken the time to go abroad in different places and really understand how the cooking works. And then they've come up with this fusion, like Asia-Mediterranean fusion, and the great chefs that do that well, it's delicious food. And I love the fact that it really reflects the identity of the country because when you're in Europe, Europeans have this idea that Americans have no sense of history because we have 200 years, you know, And but the corollary of that is that in Europe, you spend so much time trying to preserve what was built until the 1800s that you're not taking care to build what will be looked in the past as the history of your century. And I love, that's what I love about the U.S. That's what led me to come here. And I think that fusion cuisine, which is a a new type of cooking that is born in the U.S. and it is born out of the melting pot of all the influences is the best representation of that. For the other part, I thought a lot about what I would answer this question since I came up to it for for the food for the soul i think i've been lucky and privileged to be married to a singer-songwriter and the people who have listened to this podcast know that at the end of every podcast i put one of my wife's songs in and so obviously the the fact that i've been side by side with her on the journey to create her records and her music that has been really important and and her music is fantastic and then since that is maybe a little bit of a cop-out, I think one musician that has been really important to me in my life is Bruce Springsteen. I discovered Bruce Springsteen when I was 15, and I really connected, like, there's a record, Darkness on the Edge of Town, which is, is my favorite record of his. And what I love about that record is when you look at the characters in the record, these are people that are really unhappy with their state they're, you know their station in life, but they are starting to do something about it. Whether it's a character in Badlands, whether it's a character in The Promised Land. You know, The Promised Land is Badlands is this line that says, "Poor men want to be rich, rich men may want to be king, and the king is satisfied until he rules everything." I'm going to go out tonight. I'm going to show you what I've got. Right, this quest for breaking out of where you are and growing up. And one thing that I that I really love about his music. There's a song in Lucky Town, which is a 1992 record. It's not considered one of his best, but there's a song that's called Better Days. And it's a moment of reflection, you know, and where the character like, has been through a strife, but now he's in a place where we're in a better place. And I always thought of the character from Badlands as being the younger version of the character for Better Days. And I'm going to close the podcast with a, with a little funny story. When Bruce published his autobiography, they had a book signing event around the country. And so I, you know, I signed up for it. I lined up for three hours outside the store, bought my pre-signed copy, so that I could get my picture with him. And I was put in this sort of assembly line where literally you were moved through the station, then got you know gave the phone to one assistant, you were put next to Bruce. They took a picture and they moved, and you didn't really have. A chance to talk to him, but I'm like, I'm gonna ask him the question. I, you know, it's 30 seconds. I'm just gonna ask him the question. So i They put me next to Bruce, and I go, okay, is the character from Better Days, the character from Badlands, grown up? And he looks at me, he's like, never thought about it. And that was it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was your 15 seconds with uh, Bruce Springsteen, huh? Yes. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Now, Bruce is great. Saw him at the Super Bowl in 2009 uh, with the E Street Band. So just a tremendous, tremendous force in music. So, man, you know, you just, you laid it out for us. I mean, what did it feel like being on the other side of the equation when it came to the interview?
0: it's funny like i'm like oh my god if i were interviewing myself i would be thinking
1: shut up (laughs) you're talking too much no it's good though because i have learned and i taught i i work with people on active listening and you know which is why i really didn't interrupt much i really wanted to hear what you had to say because you had some really valuable things and there were some streams of consciousness there that demanded to be heard and not interrupted, right? And so I think that's just important. And so anybody listening to any interview, you want, you know, you do want some back and forth. But really, when you you listen to an interview, you want to hear what that person has to say. And I think I think your audience got to hear from Dino, you know, in in a much broader format today. So I, I think that was great. And I'm certainly at a loss for words to just thank you for entrusting me with the ability to interview you for authentic leadership for everyday people, because I know you're making a difference in people's lives. And I think that people will realize your passion for for why you do this in the first place. So thank you very much.
0: Randy, thank you so much for accepting to do this. I kind of had an intuition on the second day, you know, I, I I came to see you at your panel podcast movement. Then we got to know each other and had an intuition. I'm like, that's the guy that I want to interview me for my episode when I interview myself, and I am very happy to say that I've had some bad intuitions in my life, but that was not one of them. That was a great one.
1: <laughs> Good. I'm I'm glad I didn't disappoint.
0: No, <laughs> okay. thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, make sure that you also listen to part one, as well as the episode where Randy is a featured guest. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend who may enjoy it, that they should listen to it. And if you really like the podcast, tell all your friends and post about it on social media. If you like what I have to say on leadership and think that you or your organization could benefit uh, from working with me, please contact me. You will find all the contact information in the episode notes, and you can also email me directly at Dino at al4ep.com. Now, so going back to the podcast, make sure that you're subscribed on your favorite listen platform so that you do not miss any episode when they come out. And if you're listening on Good Pods or Apple Podcasts, please leave a rating or leave a review. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, at the end of October, I will choose my favorite review and send the author a copy of Debra Sparrow's book. If you like music, stick around because at the end of the credits, I am going to share a little musical surprise. If you want to connect with Randy, you can find him on LinkedIn at linkedin.com backslash n backslash Randy Wilburn. He's also on Twitter and Instagram as at Randy Wilburn. And don't forget to listen to his fabulous podcast, I am Northwest Arkansas, which you can find on all major podcasting platforms. You can also make sure to follow me on LinkedIn. I am on Twitter and Instagram, where you can look for at AL4EDP and you can find Authentic Leadership for Everyday People on Facebook as well. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Salvarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, as promised, here is the musical surprise. At the end of part one, I played you Susan's song, Ordinary Magic, a song that she wrote to celebrate one of our wedding anniversaries. A couple of years later, I decided to return the favor and celebrate our 25th anniversary by recording my own version of Ordinary Magic, giving it a 60s soul flavor. Enjoy. I've loved you for a lifetime But it feels just like a day And I count my blessings To be under your spell It's just ordinary magic You know me so well When my heart takes a tumble Tell what's broken, what's bust, or what's mine. But no one may